Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining podcasts. Do you like to listen? This episode of History Goes Bump is entirely listener-supported. History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 222nd episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. On today's episode, we are going to Indiana. We're going to be looking at a location that was suggested by our listener, Melody Davis. And this is the Culbertson Mansion. So we're looking forward to bringing that to you. Before we get into that, we survived Hurricane Irma here in 2017. At the back end of the show, we will talk a little bit about our experiences around that. We want to welcome to the Spooktacular crew, Philip. Hey, Philip. Renee. Hi, Renee. Mumita. Hello, Mumita. I hope I said that right. Chelsea. Hi, Chelsea. BD. Hello, BD. Amy. Hi, Amy. Ochena. Hello, Ochena. Hope I got that right too. Jeff. Hi, Jeff. Alicia. Hey, Alicia. Valerie. Hello, Valerie. Amanda. Hi, Amanda. Charlie. Hey, Charlie. Aaron with an E. Hello, Aaron with an E. Marina. And I hope I said that right. Hello, Marina. Mike. Hi, Mike. Matthew. Hey, Matthew. Rini. Hey, Rini. Denise, we always have these synchronistic type names come up together in the Spooktacular crew. Both of these women are named Michelle, I believe is how you say it, but they spell it with an E instead of an I at the beginning. So it's M-E on both of those names. One of them has two L's and one has one L. So hello to both of our Michelles with E's and one and two L's. (laughs) That was a mouthful. What are the chances that you're going to have two women who spell their names with an M-E at the beginning for Michelle come into the Spooktacular crew in the same week? Anything's possible in the paranormal. Well, that's true. And now, this moment, Naughty. The Miao people of Jiaobang Village in China celebrate an annual festival that is known as the Dog Carrion Day. This festival has been observed for centuries and is a form of worship of man's best friend. A certain dog is picked out to be the honoree and it is then dressed in human clothing, set upon a wooden sedan chair and carried through the streets in a parade. People sing and beat drums as the procession goes along led by a shaman. People have mud thrown at them as part of the ceremony, and this is a symbol of wishing the dog health and prosperity. People use the time to pray for a good harvest as well. Why does the tribe do this? A legend claims that the first settlers to the area were dying of thirst when a dog came along and led them to a clean source of drinking water. The settlers believed that this was a sign of divinity, and the dog was considered a god. We love our dogs around here, but to treat them like gods certainly is odd, even if God is dog spelled backwards. 
afraid of the dark. <laughs> That's just silly. What you should be afraid of is the thing that watches you sleep. <laughs> and now, this month in history. September on the 15th in 1890, Agatha Mary Clarissa Miller was born in Southwest England. We know her today as Dame Agatha Christie. She was largely homeschooled by her father and taught herself to read by the age of five. She took a liking to the piano and became quite good at playing and many thought she would become a professional piano player, but she was painfully shy and turned to writing short stories instead. She met Archie Christie in 1912 and they married in 1914. She tried writing a detective novel because her sister better that she couldn't. Her first published novel was The Mysterious Affair at Styles, and in it, her famous character, Hercule Poirot, was born. Miss Marple followed a couple of years later. In 1926, her husband Archie asked for a divorce after announcing he had fallen in love with another woman. It would be in December of that year that the most bizarre event in Agatha's life would take place. On the 3rd, the couple quarreled, and Agatha left the home and disappeared. Her car was found with her clothes and an expired driver's license. 1,000 officers and 15,000 volunteers searched for her. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle hired a medium to find her. She was found on December 14th when some employees at the spa where she was staying under an assumed name recognized her and reported it to the police. Doctors claimed she was suffering from amnesia, and when Archie came to pick her up, she didn't recognize him or knew who she herself was. She would never speak of the incident, and it did not make it into her autobiography. The public remains divided as to what really happened. She died in 1976 and is considered by Guinness Book of World Records as the best-selling novelist of all time. She is best known for her 66 detective novels and her works have sold over 2 billion worldwide. William S. Culbertson was once one of the wealthiest men in the state of Indiana. He made much of his fortune in the dry goods business, and he became a very important part of the development of the city of New Albany. It was in this city that he built his dream home, the Culbertson Mansion. The mansion is beautiful and picturesque, with the inside even more stunning than the outside. Artists turned the inside of the home into a colorful abode. Today, it is a state historic site that offers tours. William had three wives, and one of them is believed to still be in the home in spirit form. A tragic fire has also left behind shades of former servants. Many guests and employees have had unexplained experiences in the home. Join us as we explore the history and hauntings of the Culbertson Mansion. The land where New Albany, Indiana is today was granted to the United States after the Revolutionary War. The town of New Albany itself was founded in 1813 by three brothers named Joel, Abner, and Nathaniel Scribner. I love that name, Abner. Lil Abner. They had come from Albany, New York, and that is where the city's name comes from. Joel built his home here in 1814, and it still stands today and is known as the Scribner House. I guess there's a mansion row in downtown New Albany, and so there's all these big, beautiful mansions there, and that's one of them. New Albany was incorporated in 1817 and grew to become the largest city in Indiana until Indianapolis overtook it in 1860. This was the wealthiest part of the state. That's why there's a millionaire row there. They all moved there to build their mansions. 
During the Civil War, New Albany became a supply center for Union troops, but it was considered neutral ground, which eventually caused it to be boycotted by both sides. The North felt they were too sympathetic to the South, and the South boycotted it because it was located in the North. (laughs) Isn't that the way it always is? You just try to stay neutral, and you always get sucked in. That's the way of saying damned if you do, damned if you don't. The city thrived on a steamboat industry, which ended in 1860, and then plywood and veneer became its mainstays. It was in the 1860s when the Culbertson Mansion was built. William S. Culbertson was born in 1814 at Fairview Farm in Newmarket, York County, Pennsylvania. His father died when he was only 10 and left the family with nothing, so young William started working for a dry goods merchant to help his mother pay the bills. At the age of 21, William left Newmarket for Louisville, Kentucky. He tried to get a job at a dry goods in town, but the owner wasn't hiring. He suggested that William head over to New Albany where there was a dry goods looking to hire someone. Culbertson had a great business sense and he left the dry goods job to partner with two other men named Downey and Keyes and becomes the business manager for the firm for about five years. He married his first wife, Eliza Vance, in 1840. They had eight children together. That same year, his brother moved to New Albany and the two men started their own wholesale business. It was very successful. During the Civil War, William was active in raising money for the Union cause. He also found ways to grow his wealth. He brokered a deal to sell 50 carloads of Cannelton Mills cotton to a New York firm that would then go on to England but the port was unable to take the cotton and send it back to Culbertson. It turned out to be a good thing because the war caused the price of cotton to skyrocket and he made bank reselling it. He then got into banking in 1863 and decided to build his family a beautiful mansion. Construction on the Culbertson mansion began in 1863 and was finished in 1867 at a cost of $120,000. The house was designed by architects Joseph and William Baines in the Second French Empire style. It covers 20,000 square feet, rises to three stories, and has 25 rooms. The mansard roof was covered over with imported tin and had a three-foot railing. The outside of the mansion was striking, but the interior was even more magnificent. The floors were either covered in wall-to-wall carpet or hand-painted with this fabois graining. The ceilings were hand-painted by artists, and these artists also used the technique of trompe-l'oeil in several rooms to mimic paneling, molding, or other textured surfaces. The staircase was carved, and the fireplaces were built from marble. Eliza had died in 1865 before the house was completed from typhoid pneumonia. Can you imagine having typhoid and pneumonia together? No, I can imagine having either one separately either. That does not sound fun. Two years later, Culbertson married his second wife, Cornelia Warner Eggleston. She was a widow herself, and the two had two children together. So it sounds like this guy's starting to get his own baseball team together. Well, that would be the case maybe in our modern era, but as you know, back in the 1800s, particularly in the Victorian era, a lot of those children did not survive to adulthood. That is true. So when Eliza died, they had the eight children together. Only five of them were left motherless. So at that point, they'd lost three of their children. That's always so sad when we go through those older cemeteries because so many of them do die so, so young. I have a hard time losing our dogs. I can't imagine losing a child and to think three of them or, you know, some of these families lost all of their children, especially if yellow fever swept through the family. William ventured into the railroad business and worked to establish a new Albany to St. Louis Airline Railway. 
An airline railroad was a railroad that was relatively flat and straight with a shorter route, something we would probably call a beeline or something today. And I wonder if that's where they got beeline from, making a beeline for something. It's short and straight. He also became a stockholder and director of the New Albany and Charlestown Turnpike Company. By 1870, Culbertson was the second richest man in Indiana. He was a philanthropist as well and built the Culbertson Ladies Home for women who could not take care of themselves and set up a trust to continue financing it even after his death. Most of the women that moved into this home were women who had been widowed by the Civil War. And the reason why he had a soft spot for this is, you will recall, we just said he married a widow and that's why she was widowed. Her husband died during the Civil War. So that was something that was close to his heart. He financed the first electric company in New Albany as well. So, I mean, we're talking banking, railroads, the electric company. Now you see why this guy was at the heart of building the city of New Albany. Right, because those were all the big things that were playing in the forwarding the country at that time. And not to mention that all of this got started with dry goods. So I think he pretty much had his fingers in every kind of main business you could. Smart man. Cornelia died in 1880. Four years later, Culbertson married his third wife, Rebecca Keith Young, when he was 70. He died in 1892 at the age of 78, achieving a net worth of $3.5 million, which would be about $61 million in today's money. He is buried at New Albany's Fairview Cemetery with his first two wives and several of his children. Now we have a little rabbit hole coming up here, is that Cornelia and William had a daughter named Blanche who had the nickname Scandalous Blanche. Hello? Hello? Yes, I'm down here in the rabbit hole and I've brought you with me. So, of course, I just had to know why was she called Scandalous Blanche? You can't just throw that name out there and not have me go down that rabbit hole. Spectacular minds need to know. Exactly. Apparently what happened here is Blanche fell in love with a man named Lee Hill French from the circus. So she was going to run off with a guy from the circus, Denise. So not, not exactly the upper crust thing to do. No, if your dad is the second richest man in Indiana, he certainly does not want to say, oh, yes, I've married off my daughter over here to a circus guy. Not to mention that apparently Lee was a little bit of a womanizer. So I don't know that he had the best reputation either. So how in the world is daddy going to take care of this? Well, he was getting close. He was pretty up there in years and he had his will that he had written. And he knew that when he died, Blanche was going to marry that guy because he wasn't about to let her marry him while he was still alive. So he said, I'm going to fix this with my will. He added a special exception in his will that stated if Blanche married French within 10 years of his death, she would not receive her $500,000 share of his fortune. I can already guess where this might be going, but continue. So here he goes. He's putting the kibosh for 10 years. So maybe he thought, you know, if they had to wait 10 years, she would fall out of love or something. Well, Blanche said, forget that. She waited for a year after her father's death, and then she eloped with French. She then sued for her portion of the estate and won, so we'll be damned. (laughs) So that is why she was called Scandalous Blanche. But as you continue down the hole of this woman, she is amazing. She was a strong, independent woman, obviously. She didn't listen to what her dad wanted her to do, and if she was going to marry a guy from the circus who was a womanizer, she was going to do that. She played a significant role in New York's suffragette movement because that's where she and her husband were living. She became president of the Equal Franchise League of New Rochelle. This was one of New York City's largest suffragette organizations. 
So although she is remembered for her scandalous marriage, she should really be remembered as a hero in getting the vote for women. Right up there with Susan B. There you go. So thanks for going down that rabbit hole with me. The Culbertson family sold the mansion and its furnishings in 1899 to John McDonald. When he died, his daughter gave it to the American Legion. It then went through a series of owners and was turned into an apartment building that modified even the ballroom, splitting it in half. Historic New Albany purchased the home in 1964, and the mansion was accepted as a state historic site in 1976. Exterior renovations were begun in 1980, and later the staff of the Friends of Culbertson Mansion began work to restore the original interior. The house was taken back to its Victorian glory. Photos were used to rebuild the first floor veranda and recreate the etched glass panel in the front door. Tours are offered at the house, and these include ghost tours because apparently the Culbertson Mansion has a few ghosts hanging around. Before we get into talking about the quote-unquote official ghosts at this home, we should probably talk about the ghost lore. And the reason why we should is because apparently there are some websites out there that actually thinks this is the real history that goes with the house. And boy, I wish it was, because it is fun. (laughs) If you're into the kind of stuff that I'm into, at least. The reason why this ghost lore is connected to the house is because the carriage house has been operated as a haunted house during the Halloween season in order to raise funds to upkeep the house. And it is my understanding that there is a story attached to this haunted house. And I don't know if this is the same story every year for the haunted house or if they switch it up, but this is the one that's been circulated out there. This tale claims that in 1933, Harold Webb bought the mansion for himself and his family. He was a doctor, and so he set up his medical office in part of the house. Over time, people who were his patients went missing. The house began to give off a foul odor, and strange noises were heard in the basement. In 1934, the police were called in to investigate when the Webb family was unable to be reached after a few days. The police found the entire family dead. The doctor had murdered them all and then taken his own life. The police also found secret passageways in the basement that led to rooms that had torture devices used for gruesome experiments. Some bodies were still in the rooms. After the cleanup, the building was locked up for 30 years and then eventually sold to the American Legion. The group restored the building and it was during restoration that reports of ghostly activity started. So the truth of the matter is, it did go to the American Legion. So I don't know if that's what trips some people up. But I was like, this story is so incredible. It has to be in newspapers if it was real. And obviously, there is no Harold Webb. There was no Harold Webb that at least connected to this story that killed his family and that was some kind of serial killer. And as you look back, the family that actually owned this home was the John McDonald family. And then from the McDonald family, it went to the American Legion. So there's no Webb family in the middle there. But what a creepy story. And I can only imagine the haunted house that they built to go with it. Oh, that would be probably way creepier than I would want to go through. Now, I don't know if they do the haunted house every year. I had a feeling that they weren't doing it this year, but I don't know for sure. So I know we have some listeners that are closer to this. Maybe you know a little bit more than we do in connection to this mansion. That is the lore. That is not the truth. Here is the stuff that is supposedly going on there. Yes. So while we were unable to find any facts to back up the story about Dr. Webb, there are plenty of tales about paranormal activity in the mansion. The most believable reports come from the woman who has served as the site manager for over 30 years, Joellen Bai. 
The News Tribune interviewed Joellen, and they asked her about rumors of ghosts in the mansion. She said, that has always been a hot topic. I have seen and heard things that I cannot explain. We are not ghost hunters or ghost crazy people. We have ghost hunters who approach us about setting up cameras at night and doing their thing, but we always have to tell them no for insurance and liability reasons. When asked if she had really experienced unexplained things herself, she answered, Yes, there are the typical things. Maybe you hear a door shut, or it may sound like someone is walking upstairs when there is no one up there. My office is in the basement, and at night, if I'm here alone, I can hear things. We know something is here, but we have never confirmed it. All right, I just have to say, if I had an office in the basement of an old creepy building, I'm not going to be down there at night by myself. No, but see, she doesn't tempt the spirits, so maybe she's okay. I didn't like going up and down our basement when I was a kid. And that's where all of our toys were. That's where we would go to play. And during the summer, it was nice and cool down there. And it was we had a finished off basement. So it wasn't just the concrete thing. But it still freaked me out to go up and down. And I didn't like being down there at night. Even as an adult, the last time I was out there before my folks moved out here and I was sleeping downstairs in the basement, I was a little freaked out to be down there by myself. Okay. (laughs) The carriage house was struck by lightning in 1888. And it is believed that everyone inside of it was killed by the fire that was started. Servants refused to go out to the carriage house because they claimed it was haunted by the souls of those who perished in the fire. They had about, I think if I remember right, 30 servants on the property. And some of them lived in the back of the house. Some lived on the top floor. And then the rest of them lived on the upper floor of the carriage house. The mansion itself has quite a bit of activity, ranging from items going missing to phantom footsteps being heard in the hallways. That's kind of what Joellen has heard. Strange temperature drops occur often as well. The first wife, Eliza, is said to walk the halls of the third floor. She did not like that William had remarried. And, you know, we always say, Denise, how the hell do people know that? Maybe a psychic told him. I don't know. But how do you know? And it is thought that this is why she is at unrest. She is blamed for turning the vacuum on and off by itself. Remember that little tidbit? The third floor also has the children's rooms and a ballroom, and these are all said to be haunted by ghosts. The third floor staircase features the full-bodied apparition of a gray-haired woman appearing in the morning or late at night. One of the children's rooms is said to carry the weight of death, and one night when a staff member was staying overnight, she claimed to catch the scent of rotting fish around the bed. (laughs) That's got to be the worst smell. It's bad enough rotting flesh, but rotting fish? You. Here's the kicker, though. She asked that the scent go away, and it did. There you go. Don't we wish that could happen all the time? Like, you've had those days, Denise, when you've forgotten to put your deodorant on, you know? (laughs) Has that ever happened to you? Yeah, but I don't usually stink in just one day. Well, see, I do. That's my problem. Probably more information than our listeners need right now. But hey, okay, they're our family. Probably, but wouldn't it be nice if I could just shout at my, I don't know, my (laughs) armpit? armpit? (laughs) Smell, be gone. It's kind of like Lady Macbeth. Out, damn spot, out. (laughs) Yeah, but have you ever tried? So maybe you could. Yeah, this would go over well. I'd probably end up locked up in some loony bin somewhere. I would come visit, I promise. Great, thanks, Denise. I feel better already. Good. Some of the tour guides at the house feel that the spirits are angry because they don't like all the people coming through. Well, if it's a lot of the servants are probably like, oh, you're getting muddy footprints and fingerprints all over my clean house. I hadn't thought about that. They might be upset that they have more to clean up uh, after. 
Of course, our favorite experiences to share about locations are from you, the listeners. Melody, who suggested this location, shared some chilling experiences of her own in an email. I live in Jeffersonville, Indiana, which is just across the Ohio River from the Derby City, Louisville, Kentucky, and just east of New Albany, Indiana. There are many wonderful historic sites, restaurants, cultural venues, and haunted locations in this area, which we affectionately call Kentuckiana. But New Albany is where I have had some very strange experiences in a beautiful old historic mansion on Main Street called the Culbertson Mansion. I had always been an odd kid with an interest in the strange and supernatural. I remember the first book I checked out of my own in the school library was a collection of Edgar Allan Poe. And I would go to spooky historical places with my like-minded mom. One of those places was this mansion. We would go to the amazing haunted house in October that was held in the Holmes Carriage House, which, of course, was all show and fun. But during daytime tours, I would experience odd things, such as the sweet smell of cigar smoke outside of the freestanding closet the Culbertsons had for punishing the children when they misbehaved. It is said that Mr. Culberson would sit outside this wicker closet and smoke his pipe while the children were shut inside to think about their actions. I'm not sure if that's abusive or not. I, I don't know what the size of this wicker closet is, but I'm thinking maybe that wouldn't be okay nowadays. Well, two points here is we still do time out, so that's just a form of time out. And although Harry Potter was locked in a closet, he became great. Ta-da. Well, that's true. Okay, there you go. This is a 12 or 13 year old was very creepy and very interesting to me and of course made me a bit uneasy. Another experience I had there happened after visiting the haunted house one night. They would tell ghost stories by lamplight in the parlor of the mansion. In our area, there were a lot of families torn apart during the Civil War by the differences in beliefs about slavery and politics, being that we are on the Indiana Kentucky border. During this event, I heard two men arguing rather loudly upstairs for several minutes. By this time, it was around 11 p.m. or midnight, and no one was upstairs, and only one or two other people in the room seemed to notice at all. I remembered then that on an earlier tour, we were told that the Culbertson brothers were on opposite sides of the war and thought this must be the two men arguing. I found out later others had heard this on different occasions as well, and I have to say, out of all the experiences that I was reading about, This was one of the main ones that I saw time and time again that people had experienced. I saved it so that you could hear Melody telling it, but this was not unique for her to hear this. So this is something that is kind of backed up by other people having that as well. So it's not just her 12-year-old mind making things up. Well, it would make sense that that might be something that's there because of the high emotion that there must have been, especially during between family members and brothers during the Civil War. If they were, especially if on opposite sides, that would just have a lot of very, very high emotion, I would think. Unfortunately, I could only make out a random word here or there. This was strangely not frightening to me, and I remember that I just kind of smiled in amazement at what I was witnessing. I don't know how I would react. I guess I would enjoy getting to find out how I would react. The most experiences I had were during the time we went to the house soon after the third floor was reopened after decades of being closed. If I recall correctly, the floor was full of dead birds and bird waste from years of neglect. The birds entered through a small hole in the wall. The Culbertson Mansion had started giving ghost tours that fall when they would give tours in the evenings with the lights turned low to approximate what things would have looked like when the house was lit by gas lamps. 
During these tours, they would tell the usual history of the mansion and the Culbertson family, but would also tell all the stories from the docents and volunteers over the years of strange things they had experienced in and around the home. The first thing happened while we were waiting in the beautiful old foyer before the start of the tour for the rest of the tour group to arrive. This was before the start of the tour, so the lights were not yet turned down. Several of us were looking around, and myself, my mom, my friend, and several other people were looking up at the gorgeous stairway to the newly opened third floor. Several people were looking up, but only myself, my friend, we were around 12 to 13 years old, and one other woman saw something. A black featureless figure of what seemed to be a woman peering over the rail and looking down at us from that top floor. We were quite startled, and especially because not everyone who was looking up saw her, and she was only there for a second. At least I think so. I think I was so scared I couldn't look long. This was before I ever even heard of shadow people, but later when I did, it seemed to fit what had happened to me. That to me would be terrifying, and how strange that there were only three of them out of the whole group who actually could see her, but everybody was looking. It's not like it was... They were the only three that had looked in that direction and saw her before she disappeared. They were all looking and they were the only ones who saw her. So it's like, was it because they were more sensitive to that? Uh, it just weird. Another strange thing that happened to me on that tour was another instance of only a few people experiencing something despite being in the same place. We were walking down the hall in the third floor and walked past a vacuum cleaner on our way into a room. As I passed the unplugged vacuum cleaner, I could see the plug away from the wall on the floor. It suddenly and briefly roared to life. This is why I said, remember what I said earlier, this is something that other people have experienced as well. I nearly jumped out of my skin. Again, only I, my friend, and the woman who sensed the figure before heard this, so it seems these three are more sensitive to what's going on here. My mom was very startled by my reaction, but didn't hear the vacuum come on. And you could see why, because she's probably like, why is Melody jumping in the air like something scared her? I don't hear anything. And she's saying, I mean, it, it's pretty hard to miss a vacuum turning on. I listen to vacuums all day long while I'm cleaning. So it'd be pretty hard not to hear that. There are tons of other stories like these from other visitors and volunteers over the years. There are stories of the police being called because a woman in a long dress was seen walking the back second floor porch in the middle of the night. They found no one at the house. A woman cleaning in the basement would smell flowers and turn around to see rose petals on the freshly vacuumed carpet over and over. I've also heard it put that these were dried flowers that they will see on the floor after they've cleaned it. So it's not just that they were on the floor when they walk in to clean, it's they vacuumed the floor they're probably turning around to unplug the vacuum and it's like, well, why are there these petals all over the floor all of a sudden? Not only do we have stories from staff and guests that have been reported on the internet, but our own listener has experienced some really creepy and weird things at this mansion. Could it be that some of the family still remains in the house in the afterlife? Is the Culbertson Mansion haunted? That is for you to decide. Sounds like a great place to check out. Uh, I don't know that Heather and Rachel and Deanna and who else is over there have been through there. If not, you ladies should check this out. Or maybe they're waiting for us to come and go with them. Perhaps. We have a link to the indianamuseum.org where you can find the information about the Culbertson Mansion State Historic Site. 
And the mansion is open January through March, Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. And then April through December, it's open Tuesday through Saturday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. And then on Sundays from 1 p.m. to 5 p.m. And it's closed on Mondays. And in order to go through there, it costs adults $10 and 5 bucks for the kids. On our next episode, we are going to be joined by Sam and Jason of the Not Alone podcast. They do their podcast out of the state of Idaho, which we haven't visited very often here. I think we've only done one location there. So they're going to share a location there by them, the old Idaho State Penitentiary. There's some hauntings going on there. And it just so happens. I know some of our listeners here in 2017 have been checking out The Low File starring Rob Lowe and his sons. Well, I was watching it a couple of weeks ago. And guess what location they visited, Denise? Hmm. I don't know. I give up. It would be the old Idaho penitentiary. And I was so excited because I told Denise, I said, oh my gosh, this is what we're talking to the guys from the Not Alone podcast about. So I'm like, here we get to see the inside of it. And they actually were doing a fear study not necessarily checking it out for ghosts. So it was kind of interesting to watch Rob Lowe and his son. They they got pretty scared there. And his son is a complete skeptic. And so that's what was funny to watch him because he was way freaked out. Yeah, I have to say, it's really cool. They've So far on the Lowe files, they've done two haunted locations because they've been doing UFOs and other weird places and cryptids and that kind of thing. But the two haunted places they've done, first one was Preston Castle, which we had just done before they started the show, and then this location. So I was like, cool, we're hitting, we're, I, we seem to be in sync with the Lowe files. We'd love to have you guys get in sync with our website, historygoesbump.com. And Denise, if people want to send us some feedback, where can they do that? They can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. We heard from Sarah. She said, I'm catching up on podcasts and I'm listening to the 2016 New Year's Eve episode. So sorry if this has been shared already, but you talked about Roslyn, Washington, which just happens to be in my home state about 80 miles from me. You mentioned that you weren't sure why there would be spirits in those places because you couldn't find deaths to tie to the appearances. The mines are nearby and there is the underground tunnel for coal that collapsed a couple of times. And what is now the family movie theater, which will serve you a glass of wine or beer, if you'd like, during the movie, used to be a funeral home in the gold rush days until about the 60s, she believes. So there's some answers to why there might be some ghosts hanging around Roslyn, Washington. Very cool. Good reasons why. We have a lot of creators in the Spooktacular crew, Denise. And we thought, hey, wouldn't it be neat if we had a place where other Spooktacular crew members could go to peruse what things they're making? You know, we have some that are artists that draw, others that are crafters. We have writers, that kind of thing. And I thought, well, why don't we make a file? So we have an HGB creators file on the Spooktacular crew, which you do is over on the left-hand column You'll see a bunch of tabs. There is a file tab. You click on that. Click on the HGB creator tab then that comes up in the right hand corner at the top. It has edit. Click on that and then add your Etsy shop or your website, what have you. This is just for things that are, how do I put this, creative endeavors. So something that you have handmade or created out of your own thing. This is not for a home-based business like a Pampered Chef or whatever. We do allow you guys to throw those things up in the Spooktacular crew, but this is specifically for our creators. So please add your names and your creation locations to that list. We would love that, especially when we do the uh, spooky Halloween 
gift giving thing that's going on right now or victims. A lot of people might want to go after some of these crafty things to send off to their victims. And we also do it at Christmas time too. So yes. that would work out perfectly. So Denise, we managed to survive Hurricane Irma here in 2017. Yes, that was quite the experience. Denise slept through the uh, main part of it. Well, yeah, but all the aftermath and beforehand was quite the experience. <laughs> Denise is the only person I know that could sleep through the fire alarm going off, tornadoes, earthquakes, hurricanes, you name it. You know, we talk about a lot of scary things here on the podcast, but I have to say that that was the scariest night of my life. And when we watched what happened in Houston with Hurricane Harvey, and it parked on top of them and just dumped rain for days and flooded them. Kathleen Maka had told me while we were scared and going through the whole, here's a tornado warning, another tornado warning, another tornado warning. And we were in and out of the bathtub because here in Florida, we don't have basements. So that's our only option is to jump in the bathtub with some pillows. She went through that for 24 hours. We only had to do it for a couple hours. Jeez. And then we decided they were telling everybody to find a safe room to sleep in and then make it fun for the kids like you're having a camp out. <laughs> so we have a furry kid that likes to go camping. So we, we went into the closet. Yes. Denise and I went back in the closet. <laughs> but only for a night. No worries. Yeah. So we were we spent the night in the master closet. And I will tell you it it hit us as a category two. And initially, it was supposed to come right through the center of Florida. When they were first talking about it, doing that northward curve, it was going to come right through the center. And we were like, oh, my God, that's right through us. Well, then later, it switched to the East Coast, and it was going to kind of bump up the East Coast. And then later yet, it said, no, it hadn't turned north yet. So now it was going to take more of a westerly bump up the coast. And so it was going to be in the Gulf, which here in Florida... You don't want it to hit either coast, but it is better if it hits the East Coast rather than the West Coast or the Gulf Coast. It is That one is a lot more susceptible to flooding, although with Jacksonville, they got flooded like crazy too. We were worried about them as well, and it was supposed to basically hit Naples and then hit Tampa. Well, as Denise and I, the night is winding down, and this is before we lost our power. We were watching TV. And I'm looking at her and I said, that eye is in the center of Florida. And the little arrow that they're drawing was going right smack dab through Lake County, which is where we live, just straight right through it. So we got the eye of the storm, which can be good or bad because you get a little bit of a lull, but then you also have the worst winds on either side of it as it's coming through you. I tell people the best way I can describe it. I know a lot of people, when they hear a tornado, they describe it like a freight train coming through. Well, imagine that for four hours. <laughs> and I thought for sure when we finally came out of the closet that we were going to find we have a screen enclosure on our patio. I thought all the screens would be blown out. Hopefully the enclosure would still be there. We have white, it's like plastic PVC type material for our fences here because obviously wood would just rot away in Florida. I thought we would find that blown to shreds. And I was praying that our roof was still here. Our houses are built to a cat three. That's the regulations. But you just never know till your house has actually been through it. And we had a cat two with 100 mile per hour gusts. Couldn't believe it. We walked outside. We had absolutely no damage to our house. Nothing. Zero. Yeah, it was, it was amazing it, that it was 
was we were so grateful and kind of blown away. But I heard a lot of people, thank goodness, had that experience as well, where they thought it was going to be bad and, and there was minimal damage to their house. Even in places where these 100-year-old oak trees, these are massive. This hurricane, it spawned tornadoes, but it also had winds that were so strong that it picked those oak trees up out of the ground and threw them over. It's When you see the pictures of what it did with these trees, and we even had a couple, we have smaller oak trees here, but it snapped a palm tree in half and it did pick up one of the oak trees out on our main road and tipped it over. Some of our other neighboring Floridians did not fare as well. And so we don't want to make light of the hurricane because it did a lot of damage in the Keys, especially the the middle Keys went right through there. A lot of damage in Key West and Key Largo. So some of our favorite places did a lot of damage in Jacksonville. There's a lot of flooding. I've heard there's more flooding up in St. Augustine again that they had from Harvey. So so the coast coastal cities did get a lot of damage and we're going to be spending some time getting recovered, but we have a strong spirit here and so we're going to get it done. We talk about scary things here, but it reality really is much, much scarier. And so we hope to never go through that again, but we just wanted to thank all of you guys for your well wishes and your prayers. We could feel them when we were in the closet that night. You know, you just could feel your arms around us and it definitely was terrifying and, uh, I don't doubt that some of those prayers probably helped to keep the house safe. And we have some reviews from iTunes. The first one is from the UK. And I love this username, random person who tried this app. Five stars. New listener, absolutely hooked. I have been listening to History Dweebs for a while now. And after them recommending your podcast, I decided to have a listen. The layout and stories that are featured on your podcast are original and interesting. I absolutely love it. Libby. Well, thank you, Libby. We appreciate that. And we have Nor Tulip, five stars. Love this show and the host. Always fun and informative. Thank you. And Melissa, 0296, one of my favorites, five stars. I so enjoy this podcast. It's also introduced me to my two other favorite podcasts, The Dirty Bits and Knock Once for Yes. The hosts have great chemistry and they're very sweet. I enjoy how much fun they seem to have and the oddities and history bits are great too. Thanks ladies for doing such a great job and please keep it going. And Melissa had originally put it as a four star, but she said she changed her review to a five star because I've listened to a few more episodes and think it deserves it. Diane and Denise are such fun and so positive. There's never a negative moment. I so enjoy learning more about other parts of the country and world through the lens of the paranormal. Well, thank you, Melissa. We appreciate that. We want to thank you guys for listening to this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. You take care now. Bye bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. We'd like to welcome new executive producers, Christine Bell, Jennifer Mallory Welch, Stephen Nash, and Jack Henry. Thanks. Fan of the show? Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast catcher. We would greatly appreciate your review at iTunes as well to help the show grow. Thank you. (laughs) 